Hi, my name's Monica, and I'm an alcoholic. Okay. This room is kind of intimidating. So, I'll just start from where I'm supposed to. I have been sober since June 13th of 2005, so a couple weeks ago I just celebrated here. I got to pick up a three-year medallion, and I have a home group, the Tampa Bay Young People's Group. A couple of my fellow Tampa YPG are here. Our group is great about being very supportive of each other. I also have a sponsor, and I have the wonderful privilege of being able to sponsor others when they like to stay sober. Um, <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, so basically, I am a Cuban-Sicilian. So I was raised in a very, very loud household. Um, a lot of my ancestors were raised in convents. So needless to say, I'm a Catholic. Not a recovering one, a real one. <laughs> so glad I got to say that on a microphone. So in our house, you know, it's a cultural thing. It was really okay to drink. It was never one of those things. It wasn't one of those things that was like, oh, don't do that. Oh, that's bad. Whatever. It was, there are pictures of me, you know, drinking vodka tonics and martinis, and isn't she cute? You know, look at her. She doesn't even spill it. They thought that was very impressive. So that's what I did. You know, I, um, I don't remember the first time I drank. I remember stories people have told me of the first couple of times they drank as a child. The time that I first really remember getting drunk, I was um, a freshman in high school and thinking I was much cooler than I was, much older than I was, and much prettier than I was. I was hanging out with people a lot older than I was. And we went to a concert. I uh, knew that I didn't have an ID to be able to drink that night, and there was no way I was going to be able to pull off being around these people, just me. So I went into my parents' liquor cabinet, and I'd heard people talking about how they would put water in their parents' bottles, but then they would also finish that story with, and I got in trouble because my parents realized this didn't taste right. So I got a little smarter than that, and I got somebody to get me some cheap vodka. Some, some like $7 pop-off. So I went to my parents' cabinet, and I got their Grey Goose, and I poured their Grey Goose into my bottle, and I poured my bottle into theirs. <laughs> which I finally told him about when I was about a year sober, and my dad was like, oh, I, sw I stopped drinking that because it tasted so wrong. <laughs> Sorry. So, so I would fill up, you know, my Zephyr Hills bottles, and I would take that with me, and I took that with me to the concert, and um, I proceeded to drink my hot Zephyr Hills bottle full of my father's stolen vodka, and um, got very, very, very sick that night. Most of that night was just running back and forth to the bathroom, but not actually getting sick and not getting that. So once we got home, I decided it was time to eat. Bad idea, because I ended up passing out with my face in a cereal bowl. Got woken up to a friend of mine's father the following morning, and, of course, we had to call my parents. And I called my mother and told her, really not feeling well. She knew I'd just gone to a concert the night before and said, have you gotten sick yet? And I said, yes. And she said, you're probably going to continue to, so I'm going to pick you up. So I sat outside of my high school, which at the time was an all-girls private Catholic high school, and I waited for my mother to come pick me up. So my big consequence of my first time getting drunk was that I got to skip school for the day. So I continued to do it pretty much like that. Over time, I, uh, I realized that certain things would counter that act of getting sick after drinking so much. I didn't like beer because my mom always told me beer would make me fat, so I was a liquor drinker. 
And, um, you know, when you're drinking whiskey so much that you puke, you're not going to gain too much weight. So I found out that if you smoked pot, that would um, get rid of your gag reflex or it would slow your gag reflex. So that was my new plan. I can drink more as long as I just keep smoking. And it worked. Then a little later on, I found some other stuff and different things that would help me with my drinking or slow down the drinking or be the substitute if I couldn't get to the store or whatever. And basically, it just continued just like that. Um, I drank more than I was supposed to. I drank more than I could handle. I did more drugs than I could handle, and that was that. Um, Eventually, (laughs) I tried to go to college. And when I got there... I didn't try very hard because I'm from South Tampa and I went to USF. So I tried to go to college and I was there for about a year and I was actually doing pretty well. I rushed a sorority and I thought that was very cool because they picked me and um, I liked that. I uh, got kicked out of that same sorority about a year later for getting a bunch of the freshmen drunk and stoned. They didn't like that too much. So I got kicked out of there. Not too long after, I decided, well, you know, you have to go to school in order to be in a sorority. If you're not in a sorority, you don't actually have to go to school. To get money from my parents, though, you do. So I decided that it would be a good idea to go get a computer program and create my own transcripts. So if you're going to do it, you may as well do it right. So I gave myself fabulous grades. And, of course, actually that worked for about three semesters which I thought was pretty impressive. And, of course, you know, I gave myself pretty much straight A's. <laughs> May as well make them proud. And eventually, <laughs> I, was getting, um, I was getting a discount on my insurance due to being a student with such good grades. <laughs> and the insurance agent happened to have a child at the same school that I was supposedly going to and realized, these don't match. So called my father it all basically hit the fan at that point. And I was pulled out of the apartment that they were very lovingly paying for and uh, taken back home. And you're not going to go to school? That's just fine, but you're going to work. You're not just going to sit here. So I got a job. And, um, of course, I got a job that, like, my dad basically got for me because he was like, you're just a waste. And um, I started working, and at that point, it was a lot harder to drink the way that I wanted to drink. It was a lot harder to drink the way that I had gotten used to drinking. At that point, I had isolated myself from just about everybody that I knew. I thought at the time that I was, you know, I don't, I don't really like you so much, so I'm not really going to hang out with you. Turns out these people were running from me. Like, you were scary. You, there's something wrong with you. You're, just, you're thieving and just wrong. So when I moved home, it was people in my face all the time. It was people paying attention. And um, my parents happened to be really, really wonderful, really awesome, loving people. I forgot to say that. My parents aren't alcoholics. My grandparents aren't alcoholics. My great-grandparents aren't alcoholics, but I'm an alcoholic. It happens. Um, (laughs) I really didn't think it could, but it does. And uh, so... Anyways, they were, they were paying very close attention, so I had to stop drinking the way that I wanted to, which means I had to pick up some other things, some other things that were a little bit easier to hide. Well, I thought it was easier to hide. It was easier to hide physically, but um, they could see it all over me. Um, I basically looked like I had no soul. Like, I was like 30 pounds lighter than I am right now, which is just kind of sick. And uh, I was just like skin, bones, and hair. So... 
my mom kept asking me, and she knew there was something wrong, so she kept kind of talking about it, and, you know, your eyes are really dilated, and, you know, you can see all your veins, and, and you're very white, you know, Cuban, Sicilian, white, doesn't go. So, um, so I would come up with reasons why. I just took vitamins. That was one of my big ones. Um, Midol was a big one. That's why my eyes were dilated. I took Midol. Anyways, um, eventually the jig was up, and they were starting to really realize that there was something wrong. Um, I skipped a part. Oh, I had a stalker for a little while. We'll skip that entirely. But he eventually came back, and uh, I was on my way to work one day, and he had shown back up and sent some flowers to the office that I was working at at the time in a bank. <laughs> I just think that's funny that they let me work in a bank. Um, <laughs> so... So I started to have what was pretty common at the time, and that was panic attacks. I would hyperventilate. I was strung out. Of course I was having panic attacks. But um, So I had one on the way to work, and it seemed like a really good idea at the time to not go to work. Instead, just keep driving. So I did. And the first place I really stopped was Missouri. <laughs> There's not much there, by the way. So... I kind of did like this across the U.S., and what I forgot to say was that I didn't tell anybody that I was going. I didn't pack a bag. I didn't write a note. I left my dog at home. I left everything. So by the time people realized I was late, by the time they realized I was gone, um, I had been gone for three days, and they had decided that I had been kidnapped because I didn't tell anybody where I was going. So they called everybody that I knew, and everybody said, I don't know where she is. So um, I got put on missing persons and stayed there for a couple of weeks. Um, meanwhile, my family is heartbroken and falling apart and being destroyed yet again by um, my alcoholic decisions. And uh, they, uh, the, the stories of what happened over the time that I was gone are just absolutely horrifying. But while my side of the story I don't really remember all that much of, I do know that the first couple of days were fun, just like my first couple of years drinking were fun. But eventually the fun stopped, and there was nothing that I could do. It was too much. Um, drinking wasn't making anything better anymore. Using wasn't making anything better anymore. Praying wasn't making anything better anymore. Nothing was getting better. Because at that time, that I, I really believed that, um, not that God had given up on me, but that I had given up on God and I had wasted my shot. Um, I had always believed that God was with me, but I felt like I ruined the chance that I had, so why should I expect you to help me now? But somehow I just kept praying while I was gone. And um, it was almost three weeks, and I was in Wisconsin. Again, nothing to do there. And uh, I called home. I called home, and... Um, they did their best to get me home, and I called a friend of mine who immediately got in the car and started driving north and met me in Tennessee, where I was sleeping in the trunk of my car, just hoping to get home. And eventually when I got home, <laughs> my mother and my sister and all of the women in my family were very emotional and very grateful for me to be home. Isn't she sweet? She came home. The men in my family took it a little differently. It was, what the hell is the matter with you? Like, what did you just do? What are you thinking? This isn't okay. They were not grateful to have me home. They were pissed that I left in the first place. And so that was, that was pretty interesting to deal with. For the following five days, I spent some time trying to convince my father that I needed some help. He was very convinced that this was a willpower issue and that we were a strong family. 
He had taught me strong values, and if I really wanted to be done, I would be done. So I went through pretty much all of the ways that I had tried for that to happen, and all of the ways that I had tried to be done, and all of the ways that I had put my willpower toward trying to be done and had failed. And he still wasn't having it, mostly because he didn't want his daughter in rehab, because that gets put on paper. And how are you going to be a politician if you went to rehab? <laughs> so he had very high hopes for me, God love him. And um, so I finally got out the phone book, and I started flipping through. And you know, I came from a financially comfortable family, so... We hadn't really had to ask for much, and I start flipping through, and I'm like, I'm going to go to a state-run facility, and you're never going to see me again, and all these things, like manipulating the hell out of it, because that scares you, so I'm going to tell you that's what I'm going to do, and it works. So he said, okay, I'll take you to treatment. It's fine. I'll take you. I'll take you. And uh, Oh, but at the time, I I wasn't asking to go to rehab. I was asking to go to a mental hospital, because I figured I was crazy. That's why I drank so much. They later told me that I drank so much that made me crazy. So I went into treatment. I was there for about three weeks before that was revealed to me that I was actually in rehab, which I totally didn't believe. I did not sign up for that. Everybody's detoxing all around me, but I'm not here for rehab. I'm just nuts. Sorry. And some great things happened while I was there. While I was there, uh, my counselor convinced my parents that I did not need to live with them anymore, nor should I, because I would probably relapse, which I thought was like the greatest thing that ever happened. So I got to move out, and I went to a halfway house. A couple of other things that they taught me there was that it wasn't my fault. Um, that was actually the first time I had heard that. It was the first time that it had actually occurred to me that there was a problem here. I'd always known that there was some kind of problem, and that there was something definitely wrong with me. But it never crossed my mind that alcoholism might be what it was. Didn't ever occur to me at all. So I went to treatment, and I told them that I didn't really have a problem with drinking. Um, that was fine. I can do that. I can smoke some pot. I can eat acid every once in a while. But this Coke thing, I'm going to have to stop doing. Can you just help me with that? And, of course, my dad told him to try and get me to quit cigarettes, and that was his main concern was that I quit smoking. And, and it, was, it, was an, it was an interesting experience. So, oh, and when they were checking me in, my poor mother was in such hysterics, and I was so just out of it, that they thought she was the one checking in. So when I went behind, they were like, you can't be here, you can't be here. I'm the patient. She's just my mom. She'll be okay. Um, so while I was in treatment, like I said, I, I really wasn't into this idea of I'm an alcoholic. You know, I was 21. I was 21. How, how, how can you be an alcoholic at 21? They don't show that on TV. They show, like, 75-year-old men all yelling at each other and grunting. That's what they show on TV. So that's what I knew. That was it. I mean, that's all I had. So, so I didn't relate to that. Well, another great thing that this treatment center did was that they allowed people to bring meetings in on Saturdays and Friday nights. Um, they also took people out to meetings, but, of course, I wasn't a fan of the ones they took me to. So they brought these people in, and one of the guys that came in looked just like me. He was a young guy. He told his story, and his family sounded very much like mine. And he talked about what it was like for him when he was drinking and, you know, that he had tried these other drugs, too, and all of these other things, and... Then he started talking about when he started going to meetings and when he started to become friends with people and when he started to actually care how other people were doing, like when he said, how are you, and he cared about the answer. And he started he started talking about how he had a relationship with his family again and all of these things. And this guy had been sober for a year. 
and he was talking about all these things, and that I could relate to. The meetings that I had been to, these gentlemen who, God bless them, I'm sure they've helped each other stay sober, had been sober for quite a while, but I didn't relate to them. Um, this guy I related to. This guy, he might be able to teach me something. So I asked him what meetings he went to. And at that time, they were having a shortage of people um, coming to that particular treatment center. So he came every weekend. So I got to know him really well. The whole time I was there, he was the only story I heard. So I asked him where he went, and he went to a different fellowship. So I went there. And um, I liked that because every meeting I went to was an open discussion meeting where they would ask, does anybody have a problem today? So my little hand went up every time. <laughs> I do. Do I get to talk now? And I loved it. I loved it. I was the center of attention. And I absolutely ate it up. You know, I mean, we are great manipulators, and we can manipulate the program, too. And so I did. You know, I wanted to be the center of attention, and I found my way. I also managed to sob through every meeting that I went to for my first six months. To the point that the first one that I went to that I didn't actually cry out, they applauded me. Thank you for not crying and shutting up. And uh, so I stayed, I stayed there for about 18 months, and um, then I got a real big resentment against my sponsor. I was real mad about something, telling her about what a phase I was in. You know, it was just a phase. I'm fine now. Thank you very much for your help. It was great. You guys did a lot of good for me, but I'm good. And she told me, if that's what you think, then go get high. Have at it. And I was so angry that she had the gall to tell me that. Wasn't she supposed to tell me how great I was? Wasn't she supposed to tell me how fabulous this life could be? Wasn't she supposed to convince me again and be my little cheerleader? No. <laughs> no, she wasn't, but I thought she was. So I bailed. And for the following three weeks, I did not talk to a single other person in recovery. I did not talk to a sponsor. I lost my job. I stopped going to church. I stopped talking to anybody, pretty much. I started letting my dog shit all over, sorry, go to the bathroom all over the house. I just, I didn't care about life. And it was three measly weeks. And all of the, oh, and I had started to work my steps, but I had a sponsor at the time who every time you did something unmanageable would make you go back to the first step. So I did one, two, three, over and over and over and over. Because I was completely and utterly unmanageable. So I was constantly going back to one. Or I would do something that was against one of her suggestions. That's not God's will. Step three. And we'd back it up again. So I hated it. Hated it. Oh, and then I got a sponsor that, I had a couple, and then I had a sponsor that, um, although I was in another fellowship, said, you're going to do the steps out of the big book. What do you mean, not the big book? I'm not going to do that. She said, AA knows what they're talking about. They've been doing this longer than we have. You're doing them out of the big book. You want me to sponsor you? You want what I got? This is how I got it. So I did them out of the big book. And anyway, so after I got that big fat res that resentment, um, I got a phone call from my mother who had gone to a Bible study. And it was it turned out to be like all these women that either were in recovery or they had kids in recovery or their husbands were in recovery. And this all happened completely by accident. They all just happened to realize this about each other. And of course, you know, mother's talking, the story gets completely misconstrued, but my phone number ends up getting given to somebody being told that I was 18 and just getting out of rehab and needed some help. This real story was I had been to rehab. I was 18 months sober and wanted to go to a meeting. <laughs> so I got a phone call and I got invited to the Tampa Bay Young People's Group. And uh, 
Again, I, you know, I know I had a problem with alcohol, but I don't relate to those AA people. They're older than me. I just don't get it. I don't relate. And he said, I don't care. You're going to come anyways. <laughs> so I did. And I went and I opened the door and I swear to you, I felt like I got knocked in the gut. Because what I had been doing for my first 18 months, whether I realized it or not, was I was surrounding myself with people that I didn't physically relate to, and I was allowing that to be my excuse for why I was unique. You know, we're, we're not the same. My home group, I was the only white member of my home group, and I was one of two women. So it was very easy to say, I'm not like you, because we don't look alike. Um, these people saved my life, but physically, that was my excuse. That was my, I can't. I'm unique, you know, people like me, this doesn't happen too. And when I walked in this room, there were a hundred people just like me, like exactly like me. We'd grown up together, gone to school together. We really came from the same place. And it was so clear as day, you are not special. You are not at all, you're not unique. This is exactly where you were supposed to be. It just took you a minute to get here. So I pretty much immediately made that group my home group. There was a girl there that I went to high school with who I immediately made my sponsor because I knew her in high school and she was nuts. So I figured if she could get sober, she could definitely help me. And um, she's been my sponsor for like the past year and a half now, the longest one that I've ever had. Good job. Um, But what she did when I came in was she basically told me, I really don't care that you have been sober for 18 months. You're starting over. And again, I was like, Jesus, here we go again. I gotta start at the beginning again. But that wasn't really something she was willing to waver on, so that's what we did. And um, yet again, I had the same, it was like all over again. I found myself looking at those steps, wanting to skip the God ones, um, I hear people talk about skipping the God ones because they don't like God. I was on the flip side of that. I was raised in the church. I know God. We can skip that. I've got that. (laughs) The most unmanageable person on the planet saying, it's cool. God and I have a relationship. It's fine. My relationship with God was begging him for stuff and tattooing a cross on my neck. That was about it. So... So we started working on that, and and I started to learn that I had known God, but I had never let God know me, and that I had been remarkably good at letting you know a little bit, 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 and nobody knew it all, even any of those sponsors that I had before. But this girl has unique ability to call me out like nobody I have ever seen. I'll be laughing, and she knows I'm crying. Like, it's just, it's insane. She calls me out, and she makes me tell the truth. And she's here, so you know I'm telling the truth. Um, but she makes me tell the truth, and I, I was able to finally put it all out there for one person, all of it. And I won't say that the day after that happened, I woke up, and I was lighter, and I was happier, and everything was wonderful. It wasn't. It sucked. I just told all my deepest, darkest secrets to somebody. And what if she tells? Oh, God, what if she tells somebody? Well, we just kept working the steps, and we kept going, and I got to ask for my character defects to be removed and actually know what they were when I was asking. I got to start making amends to people and actually doing them correctly as opposed to just crying to my mother saying, I'm sorry. And I got to put things down on paper and recognize patterns that I had never recognized before. I got to see that even though 
a lot of my story had to do with drugs and other stuff. I was an alcoholic at heart. I was an alcoholic from birth, and that's just how it was going to be. It was just easier for me to get other stuff sometimes. What are you going to do? And I heard a speaker recently say that anything that counts as a relapse doesn't count as an outside substance, and I liked that. So that's why I'm not going to apologize for talking about drugs. They're a part of my story. It happened. Um, but when it comes down to it, I'm an alcoholic, and that's why I deserve my place here, and I've earned my place here, and that's why people have been open and loving and caring to me. And a couple of things that I've learned here, I've learned from people who are alcoholics, and some of them have never touched a drug in their lives. And a couple of those things were, no matter what, you have to keep coming back. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's ugly, whether it's sad, you have to keep coming back. If you don't, like I tried to do, it can get very miserable very quickly. I think I was probably about a day and a half out from drinking when I got that call to show up at that meeting. And for whatever reason, I went. And that whatever reason, I believe, was God pushing me to do something that I couldn't do for myself. And I went there looking for a date. <laughs> Let's get honest, okay? I went there totally looking for a date. I did not like my boyfriend. Oh, of course, I wasn't single, but I did not like my boyfriend at the time, and I was looking for a date with somebody else. So I went. But who cares why I went? I got to stay. You know, I got to see something while I was there that mattered. And I got to see something while I was there that I had never seen before, and that was hope for somebody like me. And like I said, I had been going to meetings for a long time before that, and I had been given a lot of gifts and a lot of blessings by some wonderful, wonderful people in another fellowship. It just wasn't for me in the long run. I started to realize that a lot of those people talked a great game, but they were exactly the same as they were when I met them. And I thought it was really interesting that some of these new people were changing. You know, they, they weren't satisfied with just being sober. That wasn't enough. They wanted to be better. You know, they, they wanted to help other people. And they wanted to show up for life. And they taught me how to become a daughter. I knew what it was like to have parents. I did not know what it was like to be a daughter. I got to learn how to show up for them. And I got to... Well, I still actually talk to my mother probably 67 times a day, because if I don't answer, she thinks I went missing again, and she'll call the police. <laughs> she's done it. Yeah, she's definitely done it. Um, we've actually narrowed it down now, because my family, by the way, is in recovery with me. I don't do this by myself. I don't know if I could. And I know that I have to count myself blessed for having a family like that that does this with me. Um, they don't believe in Al-Anon, because God... God knows they can't have anybody see them there. But with me, they're very supportive and wonderful. And um, so my mother, like I said, she's been in recovery with me, and now we've gotten it to 12 hours. If she calls me, I have to call her back within 12 hours. It used to be one hour. Well, actually, it started out with, like, 15 minutes. And little by little, it went by. And now she can handle a whole 12 hours without talking to me. And that is progress. And I am proud of her for that. Some people in the rooms also taught me how to be a friend. Definitely did not know how to do that. I knew how to get what I wanted from you. I knew how to found, find the people that made me look better. If you were sluttier than I was, awesome. If you were not as cute as I was, even better. Like, this is what I was searching for because I wanted to make sure that I was not only the center of attention, but that I could count myself one of the best ones there, if not the best one there. Meanwhile, I did not deserve to be any of those things, but in my head, that worked. Like, I hear people talk about looking in a mirror, like, and a and girl talking about, like, anorexic girls looking in the mirror and seeing this really fat person when they're really skinny. And I heard somebody talking about, you know, I was fat and I saw myself as skinny and hot. 
And that was kind of like me. Like, I looked in the mirror when I had big bags under my eyes and puke in my hair and just nasty as all hell. And, damn, I look good. (laughs) So if I surrounded myself with people that looked worse than me, I could justify that and I, I could be the prettiest girl in the room. So that was, that was what my friendships were. My friendships were finding your faults to make me look better. And I know that that's very, very sick. So they're teaching me not to do that. Um, I got taught how to call people and ask them how they were doing without just dumping my stuff all over them. And actually listening to the answer, not just planning what I was going to say next to you. I got to learn how to go to work and actually go. Like show up on the time I'm supposed to be there, stay all day long, and leave, sometimes even after I'm supposed to. (laughs) And that only happened because they made me go to meetings on time. I had to stay the whole time. I wasn't allowed to get up and go smoke a cigarette in the middle. I had to stay the whole time, and I was supposed to stay afterwards, too. Okay. If I have to do it for a meeting, I have to do it for work, too. You know, it was that kind of thing. You have to show up for life. And I did not know how to do that at all. And... All sorts of different people have taught me all sorts of different things. And those are probably my most favorite ones. The best of all was learning another relationship with my higher power. It was completely different than anything I had felt before. And for the new people, welcome. It's so awesome that you're here. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here. And please do not let me be talking about being Catholic. Deter you from this. Not everybody in here is. Believe me, most of us aren't. But... This is a spiritual and it's not a religious program, and I did not know that there was a difference for a very long time. And I thought that you guys were idiots for thinking that there was. Spiritual, religious, it's all about God. What are you talking about? It's not. It's not. Um, my religion is a way that I can talk to God. My spirituality, my spirituality is a way that I can let him talk back. And I was told something fabulous about a year ago. I was saying, you know, I was praying, and God answered me, and this is what he said. And the guy that I was talking to said, Monica, that's not God. That's you with a deep voice. (laughs) I was horrified. I thought God had talked to me. And I really liked what he had to say. But it turns out, It was just me with a deep voice. And I have to remind myself of that often, because I do that often. And that's one of the blessings of sponsorship. You get to run things by your sponsor. Who knew? Run things by somebody who knows a little bit more than you do. Brilliant idea. You know, what a concept to actually ask for help. But it was something I had to be taught to do. It was not something that I've ever, ever done. I was the baby of a gigantic family. We ran like a pack. Like we were an instant team anywhere we went. And there were like 37 of us, I think, that lived within four miles of each other. Like, I'm not kidding. It was a giant Cuban Catholic loud pack of people. (laughs) So, I didn't even know where I was going with that. But all of those people, by the way, all of those crazy, loud, drinking-like-maniac people, all of those cousins, my brother, my sister, they all stopped doing drugs the minute I said that I needed help. They all stopped drinking nearly as much as they ever had before the minute I said that I needed help. And honestly, I think some of them did it just so they could be like, see, Monica, we're not like you. Because 
And they needed to. They really, they needed to do that. Because I was highlighting pamphlets and leaving them for people. (laughs) If I have this problem, so do you, because you taught me how to do this. So they all basically proved to me that they didn't have that. But more importantly, they proved to me that they weren't running away from me all of those years. They were running away from my disease. They wanted me back. And when I had been sober for a year, my parents showed up to the meeting, to my home group at the time, with a whole spread of food because they didn't know what a meeting really was. (laughs) It's very cute. And uh, about 45 minutes in, my brother, who I hadn't spoken to in the entire year prior, who lived, like, down the street from me at the time, um, he showed up. There were, like, 10 minutes left in the meeting. And he gave me a hug, and he said, I'm proud of you. And there were the waterworks again. I lost it. And I realized that I had my brother back. And not long after that, they all took me out. And um, actually, just a couple weeks ago, they took me out for my three-year anniversary. My sister came down from Alabama. My brother was there. My sister-in-law was there. Everybody was there. And they told me that we were no longer going to be celebrating me, that we were going to be celebrating them. And they actually went around the table and said all of the reasons why they were going to celebrate themselves at my anniversary. My mother said she could sleep. (laughs) My father said he had more money. My sister said I had finally shut up. <laughs> and my brother said he had a sister. Oh, I'm okay. <sighs> and one of my aunts was there too, and she said she finally had a role model for her kids. I had gotten drunk more times with those children than I can possibly care to count for you. I had mortified myself in front of them. I'd actually puked on them a couple of times. And... <laughs> Probably like three or four now that I'm thinking about it. But she was able to say that she trusted me to be with her kids. You know, like I have a key to my parents' house. (laughs) And they have a key to mine, which is the crazier part. (laughs) Nobody was allowed to come. I had deadbolts installed and stuff. Like I was really creeped out about anything. But my life is pretty much an open book with them now. Mostly because I did my first honest fist step with my mother. Just not intending to. I just kind of, here it is. This is who I am. But everything pretty much became an open book because I wanted them to know that I was not going to be that girl anymore and I was going to tell the truth now. And A's taught me how to do that. And A's taught me that even when I don't tell the truth, there's something I can do about it. I don't have to just keep the web going and like make it bigger and bigger and bigger until I'm caught in it and losing my shit. I can go and I can say, you know what? I lied to you. Or I made a mistake, and I'm sorry. But I can actually sincerely tell you I'll do my best to do better next time. I'll try not to do it again. But the neatest part about it is that I mean it when I say it. And I learned that from watching other people say it and mean it. I learned it from watching people say hello to me and remember my name the next week and ask me how I was doing and hear me talk about a problem or something and the following week follow up about it. And ask me how it was. And I could not for the life of me figure out how these people knew what was wrong with me. They had listened. That was all. They had paid attention. So they taught me how to do that. And um, I think I'm pretty much out of time. So thank you all very much for letting me come up here and speak tonight. (laughs) 